0: Amen, Amy. Amazing love. How can it be that Christ my God should die for me? It's great to be together uh today. And I you know, Jim said he was getting liberal. Um actually if he was liberal, he would have given fifty of his own dollars and then said, and Pastor will give twenty-five of his dollars because he'd have to put his hand in somebody else's pocket if he was gonna be liberal. But uh yeah, I encourage you to come to the uh to the ladies' retreat. You're gonna really enjoy that, ladies. Um before we get started, just as a reminder, some of you may not know. A longtime member of berean baptist church uh, earl mills went to be with the lord last week uh, you may uh, be aware that his health had, had uh, diminished quite significantly over the last couple years and he was not able to drive and so uh, attending over at Force baptist for a little while because his he would ride with his son-in-law and daughter but um, uh, myself laura and a number of you were at the funeral yesterday and um, the longest funeral i've ever attended in my life two hours and 20 minutes but it was two hours and 20 minutes of, of testimony about a very godly man and uh, from a wide variety of sources and as we sang the song uh just a little bit ago um alex it was yeah crown him with many crowns anyway no what was the other one you saying where's alex at the cross maybe But anyway i was just reading the words i'll, I'll let it go because it doesn't matter but i was reading the words i just thought you know for all my life i'm going to make i'm going to proclaim uh, this life that christ has given and that really that really identified with Earl. I mean, that was Earl's life, all of his life. It, of uh, all the things that he could do, the, the blessing that he was to, uh, to uh, the businesses he worked for, the educational uh, expertise he brought to uh, the number of universities and places that he applied his trade. Most of all, he was a believer. Most of all, he was a witness for Christ, most of all. Most of all, he did the basics of Christianity and he had them down. He met immediate need. He was. Uh, uh, sure of hospitality. He just did the things that believers are supposed to be identified in doing. And it, it just reminded me, just listening to all those uh, who spoke about him. That's exactly the experience I had, knowing Earl, uh, not knowing him long enough, uh, unfortunately, because the Lord took him home. But what a blessing he was, and what a blessing it was to hear all that testimony of his life, not just what I had experienced, but many, many others. And it was a, it was a very enriching, and I, I'm uh, very grateful for his life here and his, his uh, Uh, the influence that he had. If you were here during the time when Earl was here, you know that there never was a new family who came into the church that Earl didn't go and Marvel go and talk to right away and perhaps take out to lunch almost immediately that afternoon if they could or have them to his house. That's just the kind of guy he was. He just was that uh, generous and that uh, loving but always witnessing and just a blessing. And so anyway, pray for their family, Galen and Linda particularly, as Earl and Marvel lived with them for many, many years, and, and the extended family who's still in town and suffering a, a great loss temporarily, of course, but a great loss nonetheless. So keep that in, mind, in your mind if and in your prayers if you would. All right. Uh, some have already gone, but if you'd like to be dismissed to Children's Church, you can be dismissed at this time. Uh, you can see that noted in your bulletin. So if I ever forget or someone's up here who is talking and they forget, you know right where, when to go. And you can feel free to get up, parents, with your little ones and be involved through grade six in an age-appropriate service, and for the rest of you, if you would, uh, please take your Bibles, and if you would, turn uh, to our study in 1 Corinthians, particularly 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And I've just, I've just titled this Unity Leaders, but really it is, it's uh, true and false evaluations Uh, really as it comes to life in the church. We're going to get some really basic principles of life inside the church all through these next uh, number of verses. And so I'm I'm encouraged to speak them to you. It's a more difficult message, I think, to put together than average because, as you know, if you read 1 Corinthians a number of times, you know that uh, Paul had to deal with problems in the church. Uh, They're problems that extend all the way through modern church uh, now. And so... When we go through these things, of course, my desire was to put that in the most positive light possible. And, and really, that's the reason for the writing of the book, God's plan for a healthy church. It is his plan that the, her, the church function as he desires for it to. And so Paul addresses a number of issues that are prevalent in this Corinthian church, and they have many applications, of course, to the modern church, uh, some preemptive and, and uh, preventative, and some are uh, curative. But And whatever the case may be, as the Holy Spirit allows uh, its application in your life. And we closed out last time, uh, last week, really examining this criteria that Paul uh, directed the church to use as they evaluated their pastors. That really was the whole issue. As he got through the benefits of being a saint, he went right into this whole disunity issue. And it really centered around uh, some opinions, prevailing opinions concerning Paul, Apollos, Cephas. Uh, and those are the guys who, those who were in the Corinthian church had experienced as their overseers. And so there were some things going on there that shouldn't have been. And so in verse 5, which is really where we, we, we left last time, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, look there. And we're going to read our passage here in just a second, but just as a review, as our habit. It says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. Now, as we looked at the judgment seat of Christ earlier, and we, we referenced this book because it does parallel that judgment seat of Christ and gives us some more dynamic helps us to understand that time better, but Paul just says, as he gets through giving uh, the true evaluation of those who are overseers and a broader evaluation, I think, uh, as it's applied here, God's gonna make ultimate evaluations, and Paul wants to make sure that they understand that. Uh, He gave them some uh, ways to make correct evaluation, but he said, ultimately, God's gonna do it. So if you're gonna evaluate, he says, do it right. Evaluation based on the distinctiveness of a minister, a Galilee slave of Christ, a household manager, of the word, Those are the two things he said, identify those who minister uh, and serve as overseers in the church. And ultimately, uh, faithfulness by God's standard is all about how well the minister gives out the word. That's the ultimate way that it's evaluated. Now, Paul says, but ultimately as he gets to verse 5, it doesn't really matter what you think about your spiritual life or about my ministry or all of that kind of thing because God's not appraising my ministry, Paul says, according to a little snapshot you have of my life. Uh, he's not going to evaluate my life based on the world standards that you may come up with. Uh, Paul gave the the standard, but even judging those things, we were told, look at the end of verse 5, middle of verse 5, if you would, uh, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring both to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. When it comes right down to it, after all the evaluation is done, correct evaluation, uh, the Lord is the one who makes the ultimate evaluation and not nearly so much what was done as what the motives were. That's the key. What were the motives around those things that were done? He's going to evaluate with one word. He's going to ask and answer one question, which is, why did you do it? Why? And those are the things that will weigh most heavily. And so uh, why did Paul, Apollos, Peter, every other minister, every other other believer, because it's much broader even than ministers as he gets to this point, do what they did? And the idea then is that all the things that we can't see, that humans can't know, are all going to be opened up uh, by the Lord who can know them, and he'll manifest motives. And on that basis, men will be praised. And every servant of God uh, is going to receive some praise because in Christ there is no condemnation. Uh, But as to who gains the greatest praise, as to who gains the greatest reward, only God can really make that judgment because He alone knows the motives of men's hearts. And what you need to do in your heart, what I need to do in my heart when we serve according to His guidelines, is ask the reason why. Why are we doing what we're doing? He's given you guidelines, He's given me some guidelines. Uh, But the big question is, are you doing it for God's glory or for yours? And only the Lord will really know the answer uh, in every situation to that question. And when he's through answering it, then, uh, whatever is gold, silver, costly stone that has survived the purifying fire of evaluation, as you refer back to uh, the judgment seat of Christ, whatever's still left, then the last part of verse 5, then each man's praise will come to him from God. So Paul says, don't play evaluation games with those who minister to you unless you use the right criteria. And then realize then at the, you know, at the end of chapter 3 that they're all yours, uh, that you're, you are Christ, and Christ is God's, and they're Christ's slaves, and they're stewards, they're household managers, of the resources of God's word. And all faithfulness is determined by how well they do that particular thing. But in the grand scheme of things, you don't know the full truth about them, they don't know the full truth about them, because you don't know their motives, and that's not any, uh, always any clearer to them. Uh, than it is to you when you evaluate your own motives. So ultimately uh, that judgment is going to be the Lord's uh, because we're so good at uh, overestimating our own worth and very bad at evaluating our faults and so You as we looked at before at the end of last week You're a steward of your spiritual gifts and of the gospel and we looked at that very clearly You have a spiritual you have spiritual gifts and you're to minister them inside the church And that is uh, the manifold grace of God, and that's benefiting the church. You're supposed to do that. All believers are supposed to do that. And uh, you are to do that in a way that benefits the church, and you have a stewardship of the gospel that you're supposed to give out on a regular basis. So grateful to Earl as we uh, thought about him and how faithful he was to minister his spiritual gifts and the gospel. And I'm a steward of the resources of the word of God in my position, and God wants faithfulness in both. So... We ran out of time at the end last week uh, because of a missions moment and a number of other things. But the last verse I wanted to show you is the one that I'm going to show you now. And really, I think this process is illustrated best in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where Paul says, But we all, and catch this, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And the idea there really is this, that everyone in whatever ministry they're doing, in whatever walk they're having with the Lord, at whatever point they are, whether a brand new believer, uh, a a believer who's middle-aged, a believer who's been there a long time, whatever it is, uh, Paul's calling the church to this. Listen, the transformation is to be occurring as we look into the word of God, which is the mirror of the glory of the Lord. And the more we look there to the word, The more I bring it to you in faithfulness, the more you spend time in it on a regular basis, the more we're being transformed into his image, a reprint of Christ. And he wants the church to do that and stop what they've been doing here in Corinth, which is really what James 1.22 talks about. It's prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers only, who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks into his natural face in the mirror, For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. It's called a forgetful hearer. That was what was going on in Corinth. Paul had been with him 18 months, and yet he still comes back and says, listen, I treated you as infants in Christ when I first came. I'm coming back now. You're still infants in Christ. Why? Either you were a forgetful hearer or you didn't pay attention to begin with. But one way or another... Paul doesn't want the church to be that way. James talks about it too. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but is an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. And so the idea there, of course, is the exact same thing Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 3.18. You're looking with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Looking in the word, seeing what's required, seeing what it looks like to be transformed into the image of Christ on a regular basis, slowly transformed into uh, someday you'll be glorified and will be in his image without this resident flesh unredeemed flesh but right now no forgetful hearers he says okay now that's what paul wants for the church in corinth it's it's what the lord wants from the church at large Uh, it's not what's been happening up till now in corinth Uh, there was a lot of sin and that sin had impacted the church in a whole lot of ways now let's read the next section we're going to look at it really extends all the way through the end of chapter four and Paul is going to sum up his admonition, as we said before, and he's going to get really personal with them. And he's going to talk about pride and he's going to talk about attitudes so that the problem of disunity and faction can be remedied. So we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. We're going to read all the way to the end of chapter 4, although we won't get to the end of chapter 4 today, and that's not a surprise to you. Now look at verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what was written so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Verse 7, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Verse 8, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. Verse 9, For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Verse 10, But we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. Verse 11, To this present hour we're both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. Verse 12, and we toil, working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. Verse 13, when we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become, verse verse 13, as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Verse 15, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would have not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Verse 16, therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. Verse 17, for this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Verse 18, now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. Verse 19, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Verse 20. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Verse 21. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Let's stop right there. As Paul sums up this teaching to the church on the subject of unity, as we saw as we get to this beautiful passage that deals with the judgment seat of Christ and all of that stuff, it really, we really kind of walk down the other side of the mountain, if you will, to begin to climb again into this next topic. But as he is re- uh, looking at this subject of unity as he works his way out of it, it he revisits this issue of attitude, particularly as it relates to pride. Uh, it perhaps can be said that the attitude of pride was the source of all the other problems they struggle with. And I, even more, I think, uh, for, particularly in 1 John 2, 16, as it tells of three things that make up the attitude of the world. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And I think because uh, in some ways we could say uh, that the pride was the problem in everywhere in Corinth, I think in some ways we could say that the basis of all sin perhaps is pride. And uh, the reason why I say that is because all sin is rebellion against God, and rebellion against God amounts to me setting my will against his will, and that's a proud act. And so, uh, we're going to see throughout these two letters, their pride really is mentioned over and over again. They gloried, they were puffed up, uh, they boasted, they were vain, they were self-centered. That's a real problem in this church. And in these first four chapters, we've seen that their pride manifested itself in their human wisdom. Uh, They were allowing their personal opinions to polarize the church. Uh, They had a random set of standards, and they were using them to evaluate and and exalt or debase uh, whoever it is that happened to be ministering over them at the time. And Paul says in 1 First, First Corinthians 3.3, he says, For you're still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? So in their pridefulness they were fleshly. So then you could say the love of the world was manifesting itself in the church because loving the world equals the loving of the things of the world, and that's a prideful, selfish, fleshly act. Now, we're going to see it again in chapter 5, verse 2, where Paul is going to be uh, addressing the fact that God wants a pure church. Uh, but immorality was there. And that's our next topic. And they weren't mourning about it. They were arrogant, we saw in chapter 5. So pride was manifesting itself in a really terrible way. We're going to see it again and again. And Paul had to deal with it very firmly. And he really calls them out. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, you saw it just a minute ago. Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? And he goes on. And the idea there is that when pride and worldly fleshliness really start manifesting itself in the church, things go downhill pretty quickly. Now let's look at our first transition verse as we move from where we stopped last time in verse 5 into verse 6. And we looked at it briefly last week, but it really ties this next very direct passage to the previous topic. So look at verse 6, if you would. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what's written so that no one of you will become arrogant on behalf of one against another now when he says now these things just understand he's just referring back to everything he said since chapter 3 verse 1 when he began to discuss himself and apollos and diagnose this disease of disunity in other words i'm giving i've been giving you the principles of how you should behave in the church Principles of how to really view your pastors. These are principles to live by then. And Paul says, now these things, everything that I've said up till now concerning this topic. And then he says this, so that in us. When he says so that in us, in verse 6 he says, listen, everything I've said to you, I've used myself and Apollos as examples. Although they have a universal application as we've seen, I'm applying them to us so that you'll learn how to act and solve the problem of disunity at the same time. Paul says, listen, I'm using myself as an example, I'm using Apollos' example, I am figuratively applying them to us so that you can learn how to act. And then it says this, so you may learn not to exceed what's written. That's a very important phrase right there. In other words, as you deal with us and with everyone that will follow us, you don't bring your worldly experience in, you don't bring in the flesh, just think and do what's written. And you begin to minimize your problems. And so beloved, I'll just say that's been my experience in the church. That if people would just obey exactly what it says, we'd be in a lot better shape. Say. But we bring in a lot of worldly wisdom, don't we? And what we think is right, and what we think we should do, and what we did back in my office, and what we did back in the world, and and whatever, and what we did in our previous church, and not just what does the Bible say about something. And that's what Paul says: you may learn not to exceed what's written. And what's the problem? The problem's pride. I'm going to bring in what I think. I'm going to use my opinion to polarize. I don't care what the Bible says. Paul's just being real direct about it. So he says at the end of verse 6 so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. So Paul says, I use myself. I use Apollos as illustrations. We plant. We water. But neither one of us is anything. God gives the increase. We belong to you, chapter 3, verse 22. We're galley slaves, under rowers of Christ. Uh, we are house managers, for chapter 4, verse 1, of the word of God. And to the extent that we do that last one well, we can be counted faithful, chapter 4, verse 2. Paul says, listen, this is how we evaluate ourselves, okay? We're under rowers, we're house managers. There's no honor in that. And because that's the main responsibility, that's perhaps why James says in James chapter 3, verse 1, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that, as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Because it's true that there is a strict judgment on teachers, because it's true, Paul says, that the order, in order to be counted as one who does it well, who oversees well, you have to give out the word of God. The better you do that, the more faithful you're counted. And so Paul says, we've used ourselves as illustrations of what a pastor is. It's nothing that we're arrogant about. We're servants of Christ, house managers, and the Lord holds us to a very high standard. So that in us, he says, you may learn not to exceed, what is written. And that's a great principle, has a lot of application, but here's the standard. Don't come up short, and don't go beyond what the Bible says. And in this case, with Paul and the Corinthian church, it is in this area of evaluation and esteeming their own opinions that they're doing just that, okay? Now, in Romans chapter 12, verse three, and you remember this, because we looked at it, a great illustration, and in our study of Romans, we looked at it in depth. Paul says this of himself. Now, Paul says, listen, I'm figuratively applying this to myself and Apollos, and, of course, there's lots of examples of Paul coming across this way. For through the grace given to me, I say. And we see that a lot as Paul writes. For through the grace given to me, I say. Now, he's not minimizing his authority as, a, as an overseer. He's not minimizing his authority as a pastor or an elder. He's not minimizing any of that. It's just that's the gift God's given him. For the grace given to me, I say, to everyone among you. Uh, so he's talking to everybody. Uh, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each. A measure of faith. In other words, God has set a certain limit on self-esteem. God set a certain limit on how you're evaluating yourself. Just leave it there. And of course, He gives many guidelines in the rest of this passage, so that you'll know where that boundary is. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, He says this: If you want to know what self-esteem looks like and what the limit is, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Uh, bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. There's a lot of limit on self-esteem in the scripture. And Paul is giving some examples then of what that looks like. Paul often says of himself, for through the grace given to me I say, he says that all the time as he gets ready to say something. Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. I deserve nothing, I earn nothing, I have no merit on my own if i'm anything it's because of what the lord has done. Ephesians 3:8 another great example of that. To me, he evaluates himself the very least of the saints this grace was given to preach to the gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15:9 Paul says, "For i am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because i persecuted the church of god." I've given you this example. Paul says, in my life, this is how i live. This is what i say. His estimation of himself in 1 Timothy 1.13 is perhaps the standard by which uh, he uses uh, an evaluation. He says this, Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted uh, ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Paul says, listen, I'm giving you an example in myself. I'm giving you an example in Apollos that you understand how to evaluate us, that you understand how to evaluate you. It's a very humble statement by Paul. And you can contrast that with the attitude of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, stop going beyond what the scripture allows, so that no one of you will become arrogant on behalf of one against the other. The whole idea of that is to be set aside, just like the whole idea of factions existing, regardless of what they're about, is to be set aside. Now, on this pride issue, which really is the basis of all their problems in Corinth, Paul's going to ask a few questions in verse 7, and he's really going to get personal in verses 8 through 13. And these questions will have obvious answers, and they're not very flattering. And you can find these in your notes. Uh, Here's the first one. Who regards you as superior? Literally, it means who gave you the right to discriminate against someone else? Who is currently regarding you as better than someone else? And the obvious answer Paul wants this divisive people to see is, you are. You're the one evaluating yourself as better than someone else. You're the one evaluating your own opinion as better than someone else. A personal evaluation of themselves. You do. Now let's follow Paul's thoughts. They're not hard to follow here. In other words, because you think so highly of yourself and your own opinions, particularly about Paul and Apollos and Peter, Uh, What part of your self-evaluated superior ability did you come up with on your own? That whole thing is strictly conceit. It only involves your own imagination. You invented it. And even if you have some ability, he says, here's the next question, what do you have that you didn't receive? If you have some ability, whatever it is, uh, whatever it may be, so uh, probably not so highly esteemed as you esteem it, but whatever it is, What do you have that you didn't receive? And Paul's point is, what do you have that isn't a result of the grace of God? When Paul writes, he prefaces most of what he says and any ability that he has and gives the Lord credit by the grace given to me, as we saw in several examples just a minute ago. And the answer is, what do you have that you didn't receive? What's the answer, beloved? Nothing. You don't have anything that you didn't receive. So whether it's money or intellect or ability or whatever it is, all those things come from the Lord. A few examples, 1 Timothy 6.17. People say, "Well, I bring a lot of uh, you know money into the into the fellowship. I make sure that I support a lot of stuff. You know, what I give is pretty important." Really, instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Whatever you have, it came from the Lord. All right. And when we went through our money series, you understand that the Lord owns everything; He gives it out in His sovereignty. So, bottom line: What do you have? You didn't receive nothing. James 1.17, every good thing, every good gift, everything given, every perfect thing is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shifting shadow. Whatever it is, whatever you want to throw in there, Paul's point is, whatever it is that you have, beloved, you received it from somewhere else. Salvation, did you earn that? Can you earn salvation? Can anybody earn that? No. Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. We didn't deserve to be called, that's God's plan, by grace through faith all your spiritual gifts, all your abilities, all of that. We looked at all of that in 1 Corinthians 1, 1.4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you, the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything from the grace of God which was given in Christ Jesus, you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you're not lacking any gift, all as a result of the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, by the way, Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord. That's quite a benefit package, beloved. All as a result of the grace of God. So as Paul is calling the Holy Spirit to witness to their hearts, convicting them and witnessing them of the truth of his questions, he comes to this last one. Back to verse 7. And if you did receive it, and of course that's counting on the fact that they've come to the correct understanding of their own evaluation, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And obviously there's only one truthful answer. There's only one reason for boasting. That's all, just one answer. What is it? Pride. That's the reason why you're boasting. That's the reason why you evaluate yourself higher than you should. It's a prevailing attitude, a prideful, self-centered, skewed self-evaluation. Paul says you have no ground to think you're better than anybody else. They had a whole problem with evaluating those who were leading them. And their whole, uh, the whole game they were playing with all their evaluation uh, points was all skewed. And now Paul says, listen, and as you look at yourself, you've all, you've, that's all skewed as well. You've got no ground to think you're better than anybody else. You've got no ground to think that because you can, uh, of something you can do, you're superior. No ground to think you earned anything. It's all a gift from the Lord. That's Paul's point. And you see Paul just takes away all the excuses and just leaves them with the stark reality of their pride and the boasting in their own mind, and there's no other place for them to go. By the time they're through with verse 7, they have to admit it. Now, as we get to this point, uh, without a doubt, those reading the letter were probably irritated at best and seriously ticked off at worst. And because the thing about it is, when you're dealing with fleshly, immature, prideful people, you usually get, at least at first, a fleshly, immature, prideful response. Because if they were walking in a spirit-controlled manner, you wouldn't have had to have the conversation to begin with. And so it's likely that they are responding in, very, in ways that would probably not be the best response. But Paul isn't done, not by a long shot. In fact, he's going to use a tried and true illustrative concept called sarcasm to bring the point right into their front porch. And so he's going to really draw out the ones that are causing the trouble. And usually in the church, it's usually just a few that keep the strife and keep the contention going. It's not everybody. It's usually just a few. Paul's going to draw them out, and he's going to really point at them and say, listen, this is you. So he's gonna get up and get right in their business, and he's not gonna do it in anger, he's gonna do it to provide an avenue as an overseer for the Holy Spirit to go to work in conviction. Because if you look, look at verse 14, if you would, chapter four, just look there real quickly. In the middle of all his rebuke and all of his sarcastic illustration, he says this, I don't write this to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So although he's being very hard, and he's come kind of across, uh, perhaps in our day and age where no one can speak in any way other than just a soft whatever, uh, this would probably be considered no way off limits, but Paul uses this to get their attention. Now, he says this, verse 8, let's start with the sarcasm as he calls them out. <clears throat> you are already filled. You've already become rich. You've become kings without us. Indeed, I wish you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. A stop right there. Paul says, wow, you guys are really something. Every time he describes them, of course, he means the opposite. You're already filled. Korinomi has to do with physical eating. Paul is, of course, using this in a spiritual sense. He's not saying, hey, you just came away from the buffet table. He's talking about spiritual things. They think they're filled. You think you don't need anything. You think you've arrived at fullness. You think you're satisfied. That's your evaluation of yourself. You think you're there. They were really fleshly, infantile in their thinking and their understanding of the word. He'd already pointed that out with worldly habits and practices they had brought into the church, but they thought they were full. They thought they were spiritually full and they were rich. They were really the opposite, I think, of Matthew 5, 6, where Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's how you're really full. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. But they thought they were full, but they weren't. Just fleshly, infantile, and prideful. If you contrast that, if you would, look at Philippians, real real quick, Philippians 3, 7. Contrast that with, uh, with, with the words about themselves with what Paul's words about himself is after telling the Philippian church about his pedigree as a Pharisee. He was telling them why all the reasons he had were to boast about himself. And then he really gets to his own personal attitude. It's really illustrative, I think, of where he wants this Corinthian church to be. Paul had a lot of, uh, if you would, degrees after his name, a lot of uh, uh, things and reasons why he could have boasted, a lot of uh, uh, piety, if you will, apparent spirituality. And Paul says this, but whatever things, look at verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever it is that I earned, whatever it is, however I studied, whatever things I gained I had accomplished, or whatever it was. Verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. So he suffered the loss of all that respect and esteem and whatever when he came to faith, and it didn't matter because he counted them as rubbish anyway, that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. Verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's the only way I'm going to get there, and I recognize I need to live that way anyway. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained, or have already become perfect, and there you're really referencing what we just, you're full, you're kings, all that kind of, Paul says, I haven't arrived yet, I'm not, I haven't already got there, I haven't obtained it, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also was, I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus, verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what is lies behind and reaching toward what lies ahead, Verse 14. I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, that that us let us therefore as many as are perfect—that's the word for mature. If you understand what I'm talking about, if you really are uh, spiritually mature, have this attitude. You know you haven't arrived yet, and if anything, uh, if any of you have an attitude that's different, God's going to reveal that also to you. So, you're already filled. He says, you're amazing. You're spiritually, you're already there. And then he says this, look at verse 8 again, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You have already become rich, he says. You're already rich. Oh, the implication is, as with the previous rebuke, you've become rich on your own. It has to do with money, but again, it's spiritual. You've got everything you need. You don't need me, you don't need anybody else, you're right there, you've got it all, you're full, everything's great, you brought it all with you. Nobody needs to tell you anything, you're already full, nobody needs to give you anything, you're already rich. Rich in salvation, rich in spiritual gifts, rich in maturity, whatever. It's exactly what John relayed from the Lord to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3.17. So it's a common problem. Because you say, I'm rich and have become wealthy and have no need of anything, you don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so John's no more sensitive to their feelings than Paul. He says this in Revelation 2.9, John uses the word... Uh, of, uh, uses the Church of Smyrna as an example here. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. In other words, I know you're having a hard time, he says, but you're rich. Uh, by the way, you're handling it, in other words, it proves that you really are rich in spiritual things. So that's real riches, see. You understand how to go through these difficult times. So, you're already filled, you've already become rich. And then the next one, verse 8, you've become kings without us. Basel, you owe, the exercise of highest influence or control. Uh, Like believers in the millennial reign of Christ, really, is, I think, the illustration Paul's using. You're already kings. You think you're on a throne. How nice that is for you. Very sarcastic. And then he confirms the implication that's been there all along, and you did it without us. You didn't need us. You didn't need anybody to teach you. You didn't need anybody to come alongside and reprove you. You didn't need any, any uh, rebuke, encouragement, instruction, whatever it was. You left your teacher far behind. And he's going to go back to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. So he's not going to leave this behind, see, because this is the attitude of the church. So he says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if I'm insane. So Paul's getting into this uh, straw man argument with somebody who's not arguing with him, but he's referring to the church. So he says this, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten time without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was spent in the deep, I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in this city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren I have often without food I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst without food and cold and exposure Uh, apart from such external things there's the daily pressure he says on me of concern for all the churches who's weak without my being weak who's led into sin without my intense concern in other words On top of all the other stuff that I'm going through, uh, I'm concerned for the church, and if somebody is weak, uh, Paul is is suffering with them. If somebody's in sin, uh, Paul is suffering uh, with that in concern. Here's Paul in comparison to what the Corinthians arrogantly thought about themselves, see, that they've already arrived, they're already full, they're reigning as kings, He's distraught over all the issues of the church. He doesn't have it all together. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty one, 21, again with sarcasm, wow, to my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison to you. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness, I'm just as bold myself. So he says, I don't want to speak like this. I'm talking like you talk, see. So this big problem of prideful, improper self-evaluation, and then he shows them... That he is using sarcasm because they were so arrogant, perhaps, is my own thought, of course. They may have thought that Paul was actually telling them what was really true about them, what he noticed. You know, you know I noticed you guys are uh, filled and you're rich and you know, you're in charge of everything. And they're like, yeah, 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 I'm glad you noticed. We, we do have it all together. No. Paul's not saying that. So look again at verse 8. I wish you had become kings so that we might reign with you. No, I'm not telling you what's true about you. I'm telling you what's the opposite of what's true about you. I wish you did rain, you know what? Because if you're raining, we'd be raining too. It'd be really great. We wouldn't be dealing with all these problems you've created by your pride and your selfishness. I wouldn't have to deal with you harshly right now. I wouldn't have to give you this rebuke, he says. If you were really dealing with everything like it should be dealt with, I wouldn't be writing you this difficult letter. See? And you guys wouldn't be polarizing the church with all your worldly opinions. Listen, you haven't arrived there, he said, okay? You're not full, and you're not rich. And you're not ruling like a king without us. So here's Paul. He's bleeding for the cause of Christ, enduring mockery, disrespect, persecution. And here are these conceited Christians, uh, the Corinthians, and they have this all figured out. So Paul continues to use this very direct tone with them. He calls them out. No doubt, by this time, everyone knows who Paul is talking about because it doesn't take long to figure it out. Just a few who always cause dissensions, always a few who always have to create a disruption, and he's calling them out. All right, church knows who it is. So Paul's going to do some comparison here between what's going on in the church and what's supposed to be going on according to the example of the apostles. Because, as he said, I've used it figuratively of myself and Apollos. He's going to spread it out a little bit and just say, listen, watch what's going on around you, okay? It's very simple to understand now that we know what Paul's doing, okay? Uh, I think we can catch on to this very quickly. Look at verse 9. just a few minutes here, we'll try to wrap up this section. Verse 9. For I think, he says... God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Paul says, listen, I'm going to give you this example of the apostles as you watched what they've done, okay? God has exhibited just means put on a public display. Paul says we are before the world in last place. It's really the idea that Jesus presented to his disciples in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. As the reality for his disciples, he wanted them to embrace it. So not only was it true for the apostles, as it moves on out, it's going to be true as well for those who follow Christ. In Mark 9, verse 30, it says, From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's been killed, he'll rise Three days later. So in other words, he's not proclaiming this to everybody, but he is telling it to his disciples. I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise. Verse 32. uh, But they did not understand his statement. And they were afraid to ask him. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? So in other words, he's telling them what's gonna happen. He's pulled them aside and said, listen, this is, what I'm, this is what's gonna happen with me. I'm gonna be put to death by wicked man and then I'm gonna rise three days later. And he didn't wanna tell everybody, he's just telling the disciples. But they're not, not only they're not listening and don't understand, they're having a whole nother conversation that's going on. And what's the conversation? It's a little embarrassing. And not only is it embarrassing, nobody wants to say what the conversation was. Kinda of like if you have children and you catch them when they're little doing something that they're not supposed to do and then you ask them, nobody's volunteering. All right, so nobody's going to put up their hand, yeah, this is what we're doing, Dad, or whatever, okay? So he says, uh, what were you discussing, though, on the way? Verse 34, but they kept silent, for on the way they discussed with one another which one of them was greatest. Common problem, it appears, right? The problem in 1 Corinthian Church, and this problem right here with his disciples, and it's a problem in the modern church. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, He shall be last of all and servant of all. And didn't Paul just say that? Listen, the apostles, he said what? God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we become a spectacle to the world and both to angels and to men. So here's Jesus telling them about the death and how he's going to die and what will occur and what's going to happen after three days. They're not listening because they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. And when he asked them about their conversation, which Luke in the parallel passage says, he already knew what they were talking about. So it's not like, I wonder what they were talking about. Let me ask them. He already knew what they were talking about. He wanted them to admit it, okay? So he won't tell them because they're embarrassed. Uh, But that prideful heart attitude is still prevalent among some of the Corinthian church. So Paul says, this is what it means to be a believer. Verse nine, for I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We're last, not first. We are, as men condemned to death, not rich, not kings, not full, okay? He taught the lesson that is so fundamental, and it keeps on applying, and Paul's applying it here in Corinth. It keeps on applying to the church. Here it is. The crown only comes after the cross, okay? That's the principle. You're last right now, okay? You're not first. You're not filled. You're not full, whatever. You're not a king ruling. Matthew 19, verse 27. Great illustration. Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And so Jesus confirmed that his principle uh, about you're not first right now, the crown's only gonna come after the cross, with his disciples. Those who were with him in the end, uh, to the end they'll be physically ruling with him in the millennial kingdom, with his disciples particularly, ruling on 12 thrones. But they weren't ruling then, were they? They died in noble death. But right now they're like criminals and everyone's watching them being led away to death. A lot like the, the Roman parades of criminals after a, a capture of a city or whatever, being paraded to the Colosseum so they can be killed by uh, the beast. Kind of like that. All right, not exactly, but because uh, particularly those would come in before the whole procession. If, if a general was very, uh, or the commander was very uh, uh, victorious over a city and he captured a lot of people, they, w- they would come first, and then everybody, uh, you know, the, the soldiers and the, and the general would come after. But Paul says, listen, we're just paraded in front of everybody as in last place, as those condemned to death. They were appointed to death, and everyone watched, even the angels, it says, watching this whole procession watching believers be last now verse 10 and we'll just get started here and then we'll pick up here next time he says this verse 10 and he's not going to stop with the whole sarcasm thing for a little while we're fools for christ's sake but you're prudent in christ we're weak but you're strong you're distinguished but we're without honor To this present hour we're both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands when we are reviled we bless, when we're persecuted we endure when we're slandered we try to conciliate and we've become as the scum of the world the dregs of all things and you read off scouring that's the idea even until now and there's lots of principles that we're going to see next time but Paul says this basically, we're fools for Christ's sake we're moros and we're not really fools But in the world's eyes, we are. Paul says we go through the world, and the world counts us as fools. If you remember, as Paul uh, was teaching in Acts 17, the men of Athens called him an idle babbler, a seed picker. And uh, the Pharisees derided the apostles who preached the cross as uneducated men. We're fools for Christ's sake. But that's the mark of the mission, Paul says. That's what it's supposed to look like. And it's a lesson, as Paul pauses here for a moment, that he wants the church at Corinth to understand the crown only comes after the cross. That's the principle. It's a principle that the church continually needs to embrace. And we're out of time, so we're going to close. Let's bow in prayer together, if we would, as we really desire to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us and do His application. As I've told you, as your head's bowed many times as we've started this, there are hundreds of applications here. It's impossible to get to every one of them. But I encourage you to meditate on these things, to understand that the, the issues that Paul deals with in the Corinthian church are issues that plague the church still. Self-evaluation that's skewed, evaluating ourselves as filled, full, rich, ruling. When really the cross has to come first and the crown comes afterward. Paul says, listen, this is my life. This is how I've lived in front of you. It didn't undermine his authority with him. It was just the simple fact that this is how it is. Lord, it's our desire today that we uh, begin to learn and continue to learn from the mistakes of the Corinthian church and from the example of the Apostle Paul and the disciples, as we see Jesus speaking with them, that we might learn to simplify all of this, that we might, uh, as we look at our own lives, realize this is how it needs to work. A self-important piety, uh, an evaluation of ourselves which is faulty, thinking somehow we've arrived, not to be far from the church. Those types of prideful attitudes, Evaluation based on false pretense, on facts that don't exist, evaluating motive, those kinds of things should be far from us. Lord, I pray that that will be. And use it in a preventative case or a curative case, however your Holy Spirit desires and sees it needs to be done. And if you sit here today, of course, as we talked about what it means to be, what the marks of a mission are, to be fools for Christ's sake to be, as those men condemned to death, a spectacle to the world. And that doesn't describe you and your desire. Perhaps I could say that at, uh, at best that you haven't understood what the scriptures say and you've exceeded what it said or haven't, have come short to what it said. But at worst, I would say, if you haven't understood embraced that lifestyle, you may not even be born again. That's a simple thing to remedy. Confess with your mouth, Jesus, as Lord. Believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead. He has the right to rule. He came and did what he said he came to do. Accomplished all that he said he was going to do. He ascended back to the right hand of the Father to make intercession for the saints at all times and waits to come back and catch his church away. Let me tell you that if you wait, you may find yourself waiting too long. If you wait, you may find that you enter eternity apart from a relationship with God through Christ. What a sad state of affairs that would be When you have exposed to you the gospel on a regular basis here at berean and of course in many other places confess with your mouth jesus is lord believe in your heart god has raised him from the dead turn from your sin be desirous to be made new understand that you are who the scriptures say you are cursed apart from the lord and on your way to an eternal destiny in hell separated from the lord forever you've prayed that prayer, confessed to Jesus as Lord, believed in your heart God has raised him from the dead, the scripture says you shall be saved. And so you have entered into a new relationship with the Lord through his son. Before you go today, would you let us know that that happened right now while it's fresh. Take the card right from the pew in front of you and don't worry about who's looking at you. They're going to rejoice. And tell us that you did this. That we might help you grow. Discipleship, following the Lord in Believer's baptism, all parts of your life now. And you can submit to those things willingly now because you've been made new. Father, for all these things, all the ways that you'll apply your word today, for all the ways tonight, as John teaches, that you will make us new. And let us look into this marvelous word, this mirror, and not become forgetful hearers. Lord, do that, I pray. Bring it to our memory. Help it to resonate in our own hearts this week. I thank you for the blessing of Earl's life and and the, uh, the remarkable testimonies of those who knew him. I pray, Lord, that we'll be saints like that, doing what you say, repentance of Christ. You might find that when we enter into your presence sometime in the future, that most of what we've done enters in with us as gold and silver and costly stone. An enduring house that brings glory to you for all eternity. It's our desire, it will be our utmost desire in eternity that that be the case. Help us to work to that and now by your grace and through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus, your Son, and all God's people said, Amen.